This is the Life of Jesus podcast with Ben Greenbaum and Mark Elsesser. For a full year, we've been looking at the life, teachings, and works of Jesus from the four Gospels put together in one chronological flow. Ben, we've, we've been really focused here the last few podcasts on the last hours in Jesus' life before his arrest. He spent some time with his disciples in the upper room with the washing of their feet and the Lord's Supper. And then he went out with them, and he was spending time with them, teaching about the promised Holy Spirit. And there's some other teachings in there that we didn't cover, but they're in John 14 and 15 and 16. And now we get to his prayer life, how he was praying right before his time of his arrest. This is found in a couple of different places, and it's in different ways. John 17, we'll look at first a longer prayer that we have of him and peel into that a little bit from what his prayer life was like and what he was praying for. And then the scene shifts to the Garden of Gethsemane when he's having his last moments of prayer as he is getting ready to be arrested. For you, as we get this thing going, when did when did prayer become an important part of, of your life? You've talked a little bit about your journey into faith, that you were not a person who was a follower of Christ when you were young, and that meant very little to you, and you, you came to faith as a young man in your life. When did, when did that come alive for you, your prayer life? You've talked a lot about your prayer life. I know you're a person of prayer. I'm curious like how that, how that works for somebody um, like you. You know, I don't know if I can't think of, I guess, when it became a a priority. I think one of the things that I've always been convicted by is that um, in reading, especially in my, in reading the New Testament and reading the scripture itself, but the necessity of prayer for, to, in order to grow in the knowledge and likeness of Jesus Christ, I, I see Paul and his engagement with the churches, uh, several of his his letters basically begin that way that he's praying, you know, for the church in Philippi, for the church in Colossae, and he's praying for them basically to grow up in the knowledge and likeness of Jesus Christ. And so as I encounter scripture, uh, seeing where my, where my life's not aligned with Christ, um, praying for those things to become made manifest, uh, recognizing that that my life in Christ is dependent uh, upon my prayer life, that it is a, a essential, central role in my life with Christ and, and just in my communion uh, with God, you know, the idea that we pray without ceasing. And so a lot of times I, I find myself in what I would call like uh, non-formal prayer where I just find myself nowadays, there's, you know, you're just walking in the neighborhood or jogging or driving in the car or whatever it might be and, and having, uh, this ongoing conversation, uh, with the Lord, not simply making requests known, uh, but praying for God to speak into, to my heart, for God to illuminate my mind, uh, to what it is that he desires and, and he wills. And there, there have been those moments I, I'd say that are significant where you, oftentimes I encounter a people of such devout prayer that it just absolutely uh, convicts the heart. And so, uh, you know, I remember, uh, gosh, I guess it's been six years now, but I was in Seoul, South Korea, 
And uh, one of the churches that I was visiting while I was in South Korea, they had a, a prayer service every Thursday morning at four o'clock in the morning, and they would pray for three hours. And uh, I mean, it just kind of, yeah, it, it was it was convicting uh, to say the least. The the understanding, their understanding of dependence upon uh, prayer in their life with Christ. My great role model for prayer in my in my life has been my wife. Mm. She Lisa prays. And we've been married for 39 years, so I've been, I've been around her for four decades, and I know that she is a, a person of, of prayer, and, and I am struck by it many times. She, when she starts praying, it, there's not an off switch right away, I mean, she, and it just rolls out of, of her and her life, mm. and, and I'm still learning from her and from others as well about about the meaning of authentic prayer in life and, and what it means to to truly draw into the presence of the holy because it's a it's a great thought isn't it that we can have a conversation with the creator of the universe that we can speak with the one who redeemed us from our sins on the cross that we can have a conversation with the spirit of god the holy spirit who dwells with us and in us. It's really an amazing thought that we can have this kind of two-way communication mm-hmm. with God. So let's take a look at what Jesus prayed and what he prayed about. And we'll take a look first at John chapter 17. And in the first section, verses 1 through 5, he prays for himself. This is, again, hours before he's going to be arrested, maybe maybe even less than hours, maybe minutes. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may be glor- may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all you have given him. He's speaking of himself in the third person. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And I don't know what's striking to you, about this, but as I look at it, I think there are some things that might be missing from how sometimes I pray and maybe sometimes other people pray and often sometimes in my own inadequacy, my prayers are, are God help me and I need this and here's my list and this is, this is what I, I want from you for, for my life and so forth. I don't see that in this prayer. I see a complete surrender of him to the Father so that glory can be given to God and eternal life can be given to humans. It's a powerful prayer, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And again, as you allude to there, uh, in many ways should inform our, our own prayer life. Um, 
I think too often our, our prayers are, they are, and not that we don't pray for the physical needs that are before us, you know, health needs, whatever, whatever they might be, whatever, uh, physical brokenness that, that we're dealing with, but this greater need to live into, uh, a life that glorifies God, that that would become the, the hunger and thirst, uh, of my, of my life. You know, what is the chief end of man to glorify God? And so, uh, for that to be at the root of, uh, of our hearts, our desire, as we go before the Lord in prayer, uh, recognizing that God does God, God works for his glory and his people's good. And so I, I go into my life of, of prayer, uh, remembering those things. Mm, that's, that's really tremendous. He, he then shifts the scene, not a scene, his prayers from himself to his disciples, to the 12 who are his followers who will carry on the ministry after he ascends into heaven. And he prays this in John 17, verse 6 and following. I have revealed you, he's speaking to the Father, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in this world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, Judas, so that scripture would be fulfilled. And there's a little bit more here that we can look at as well if we want. It's a, it's a message that, you know, John has written this down. So they're overhearing this prayer that Jesus is offering. And it had to have a powerful impact on them. What what do you think this did for them as they're listening to Jesus offer this prayer to the Father in heaven for them because they are going to be the one who launches the Christian movement into the world? Yeah, I think, uh, especially, I guess, reflecting back on the prayer, post-death, post-resurrection, you know, Jesus, um, as he faces uh, the anguish of the cross, um, he's he's offering prayer on their behalf and offering this prayer of protection, which really goes to the, the preservation of their life uh, in Christ and the eternal hope that they, that they have. Um, and so he sets them apart uh, from Judas in that. And, and Jesus' prayer reminds me so much of what Paul writes to Timothy. As Paul is nearing death, and uh, in Second Timothy he writes, he said, The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely 
to his heavenly kingdom. And, uh, and so Paul knows that physical death is certain. Um, he, there's, there's no way out at this point. He writes that second letter to Timothy, knowing that death is certain. And yet he makes this point, um, that the Lord is going to bring him safely to his heavenly kingdom. And so the, the disciples, the apostles on the other end of the resurrection and Jesus, Jesus's ascension, they got into the world to bear witness and physically they suffer horribly. But in light of the resurrection, there is this constant assurance that they go out with, that, no, that knowing that death itself will not separate them uh, from God, that they are preserved, that they are protected, that they are redeemed by the blood of Christ, which then compels and frees them uh, for, for ministry. And so a lot of times, too, I think when we read this, uh, while you know, Jesus doesn't want them to physically suffer. A lot of times that's when we think about protection, that's all we ever think about is we think about the physical protection. Um, and that's where so much of, again, of our prayer life centers on the physical material realities of of this world. And, And while we should be praying for those understanding the greater eternal reality that exists for those in Christ and seeking to make that made manifest uh, to to the lot to others as we go and bear witness uh, to Christ. Wow, I love that. Jesus, he, as part of that, he he said in verse seventeen, "Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth." That that lives into what you were just just speaking about. And then Jesus goes on. We'll we'll skip a little bit of that. He goes on in verse twenty, and he begins to pray for not just himself and his disciples, but for others who will come along. I take this to include my, me mm-hmm. and uh, people who will be believers in the future. He says in verse 20, John seventeen twenty, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them as they have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Christ has existed forever. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. This is this is an amazing prayer. It's quite a promise, because Ben in this, he is promising that those who are believers in him, followers of Jesus Christ, will have the presence of God with us forever and ever, and will live this life, which is a life that reveals who who God is, who Jesus is in the world. That is our mission, and he promises us that we will have 
this unity with him and with one another in order to be able to accomplish that task. Yeah, Powerful, he, isn't it? Yeah, and he, he prayed that, you know, of, uh, that these verses are the most quoted verses in Greenbaum sermons, uh, by the way. Uh, I love this passage, and, and part of it is, is the for uh, Jesus prays for unity among among his followers for the sake of their witness. We're supposed to, you know, be that uh, outpost of God's kingdom here on earth. And part of the way that outpost is manifested is through the unity that we experience, through the, the mutuality of love and, and sacrifice uh, that, that we give ultimately to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, which should in some way, small way, but be a foretaste of God's eternal kingdom. It makes God's eternal kingdom may manifest here on earth. And as Jesus prays for this unity, the other thing that I'm reminded of is that this is not some sort of superficial, sentimental unity. It's a unity bound up in Christ, who has both saved us, who has both given us the spirit to bind our hearts together, whom we as a people are supposed to live under his lordship and authority. And so when we consider the unity that, that Jesus prays for, it's a unity bound intimately to him. It's not, again, some sort of superficial, sentimental unity that's bound to an institution where we just kind of come together and everybody agrees to you know, believe whatever they want to believe. It's a unity bound up in the lordship of Jesus Christ and a people submitting themselves to Christ. And so often what you see within the context of scripture or within the context of, you know, the, the 2000 years of the church post Jesus's ascension and the coming of the spirit is that disunity is made manifest and created and nurtured most often through false teaching. And so we see that through, again, throughout the, the, the new Testament in particular, through the, the epistle writers, through Paul, you see it, heavily in John's first letter where John is talking about really the need for unity and and calling those brothers and sisters in Christ in that church uh, to love one another and what is ultimately subverting that love is falsehood it's false teaching it's a people who have come in and proclaimed a false a false truth so so let me follow this i think you're suggesting maybe that the problem is not that we have Catholics and Protestants and and then denominations within that. The challenge to that unity comes in falsehood. Yes, within local bodies of Christ, and and so oftentimes we again sentimentalize Jesus's call for unity, or what you know Paul writes on unity. Um, you know, the idea of, of being bound in heart and mind, I think he says in Ephesians 4, and we sentimentalize that, and, and we make it, again, sometimes the superficial unity that is not bound to Christ, but is bound more to some sort of, you know, cultural sentiment, rather than what is actually being proclaimed in the pages of Scripture. And so, to, to really, truly pursue this unity, it's to it's a mutual submission among brothers and sisters in Christ saying, you know what, I am going to live under the authority and lordship of Christ because I 
deeply and desperately want to glorify God, the God who has saved me, the God who has redeemed me, and I want to live in deep, abiding fellowship with God and with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Mm, That's a great call for uh, all of us to pay attention to and I think to live into in our lives. Jesus, the scene shifts now in John 18, but he continues his activity of prayer. So in John 18, verse 1, the very next verse, when Jesus had finished praying, he left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. We know that garden, it says in Matthew and Mark, is a place called Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's pick the story up in Mark chapter 14, if anybody's following along, Mark chapter 14, and it's in verse 32. They, that is Jesus and the disciples, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul, quote, he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch. So he had the disciples that were, he, he kind of let said, sit here and wait. Then he had the three that he took closer with him, and he wanted them to stay there and to stay alert, to keep watch while he was praying. It, it's interesting that the Bible says that he was deeply distressed, that he was troubled, and that he spoke, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I, I think sometimes we, we picture Jesus as sort of happily going to the cross and like, ah, this is going to be no big deal. I'm the son of God. I can die for the sins of the world. That is not what's going on in his heart at that moment. It is a moment of deep sorrow and deep grief. He's very disturbed and troubled, the Bible says, as we, we see what he's doing. So he, go, he goes on, verse 35, Mark fourteen thirty-five, going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Over in Luke 22, 42, we get a a little more detail about what took place. He said, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not what I will, my will, but yours be done. And it says in Luke twenty-two forty-three, 43, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. This was an intense moment in Jesus' life, wasn't it? Yeah, incredibly intense moment. Um, the, the sheer anguish that he expresses in in the prayer, and a lot of times we we attribute that to the physical, the horrifically the horrific physical suffering that he would endure, and the beatings that he would suffer after his arrest and the crucifixion itself. And one of the things that that we oftentimes I think neglect is the the aspect of separation, whatever that looked like. I can't define it. In some ways, it's a mystery to my finite human mind but recognizing that there is this moment of separation between 
he and the father, um, who, you know, in eternity past, they always existed in, in perfect relationship. And then for Christ to bear our sin, um, and to bear the wrath of, of sin, um, there is this moment of separation that he and I believe the father both grieve. And so there's this, this anguish, this undefinable anguish uh, that exists in, in the heart and mind of Christ as he prepares to go uh, to the cross. It's a terribly challenging, difficult moment, even in the life of the Son of God. Let's pick the story back up at Mark chapter 14, verse 37. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said, Are you still sleeping? (laughs) Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man, a title for himself, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So the very last thing he did before his arrest was pray. Poured himself out to the Heavenly Father. And here comes the betrayer. Next time we'll look at that, his betrayal, the arrest, and the trials that he endured on this night that stretched from a Thursday night as they kept track of a day into Friday morning when he would be crucified. So we'll take a look at episode 46 of his arrest and his trials. Folks, if you want to jump in deeper to this year-long study in the life of Jesus, you can go to the Life of Jesus link on our church's website, fishersumc.org, or our church app. Until then, may God bless of you. Thank you.